Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. In today's episode, we tackle the separation of powers and whether it is time to do away with it. Why do we have separated powers? What impact does this have on our politics? How does our understanding today compare to its real meaning? Is it the source of our problems? And if so, what can we do about it? These are some of the questions that we are going to tackle today. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Zai, associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'll be uh, hosting today and uh, asking the questions and moving us along. So I want to start by mentioning that we're recording this on Friday, October 18th. 2019 in at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. So we're going to make some references to the wild week we've had here in American politics. But we uh, will our discussion will reflect that we do not know whatever's going to drop this afternoon, and it'll be something probably. Um, so that's that's where we're at. Whenever you're whenever you're listening to us, just please know that. So I want to I want to jump into our first segment here, where we're just going to define separation of powers. And later on, we'll talk about what's wrong with this and then what are some proposed solutions and what's wrong with those solutions. But let's let's get going on this, you know, when we talk about separation of powers. We usually mean legislative and executive branches, and I think that'll be our main focus today is the, the separation between Congress and the presidency, a little bit less on the judicial branch or the, the separation between federal and state governments. Um, I, I want to focus, I want to jump into the kind of broad philosophical justifications for why our system looks the way it does. Okay, let's philosophize. All right, James, should, you're usually our, I, our, do you our philosopher, so I'm really looking at you, except I'm not looking at you because we're all remote. Oh my God, it's like separation of podcasters. Uh, how, how appropriate. Uh, Grown. Like all right, it. so why do we have this separation of powers system anyway? But what were the framers doing? What were they thinking about? We always, we always kind of bring it back to the original intent. So, I mean, re, my reading of the history is that there were a couple things going on. Uh, one was that you know, the framers were looking to to Britain as the model, sort of, uh, and the you know the model was a kind of tripartite system. You had the monarch. And then you had the House of Lords uh, sort of representing the, the upper crust and then the House of Commons representing the people. So you, they, they sort of borrowed that tripartite structure. You have, the, you have an executive. Uh, then you have the Senate, which is the, the, uh, you know, the, the upper crust. And then you have the, the House of Commons or the, just the House of Representatives, as, as we call it. Uh, which is the people, and uh, you know, there's a, a a fear of of tyranny of too much power anywhere, and and so y- the argument for separation of powers is you kind of eliminate that fear of tyranny by making it hard for that that popular legislature to do too much, and then hard for government to pass laws. Generally, that if you have separation of powers. You, you spread power around and you make it hard for anything to get done that doesn't have a broad compromise. And you also make it really hard for political parties to form because you've created this labyrinthine structure, or so the framers thought. 
turns out it's pretty easy for parties to form. Parties formed pretty quickly. And they were pretty Congress-centric for a while because the way that parties nominated candidates for the presidency was through King Caucus, uh, which was the nickname for uh, the nominating system that the congressional parties used to nominate candidates. And then that kind of broke down with the election of, of 1828. And... Uh, but still, 19th century was basically con more Congress-centric. Uh, and then in the 20th century, power kind of shifts to the executive. And with FDR, it really shifts to the executive. And then you have this sort of period in which the, the presidential parties are a little different from the congressional parties. And there's this sort of argument that, that that the problem with American politics is that we have this deadlock, that what we need is stronger, unified parties, or at least that's an argument among political scientists. And then we go through this period of divided government where Congress is mostly controlled by Democrats and the president is mostly controlled by Republicans. And the general consensus is that's kind of bad because it's hard to hard to uh, you have this dual legitimacy problem. It's hard to see what the people actually want, although then the argument emerges that maybe what the people actually want is uh, both both chambers and both parties to compromise. And there's sort of this feeling that, well, it will always be that way. So you get actually this period of, of compromise. And then starting in the early 90s, when parties start to really become unified, you, you get this cycling where you go from divided government to unified government to divided government to unified government, and the parties get further further apart and stronger. And that's where we're at today. Yeah. But, uh, Lee, let me jump in because I think it's an important point. We think of parties as a way to transcend um, the hurdles or the separation of powers in our system. And typically, at least it, occur it seems to me. And I think that in a very subtle way illustrates the disconnect between how we think about separation of powers today and the original understanding, or at least the approach. That is, we tend to think of government, and I've mentioned this before, in terms of progress. Politics is about progress to a promised land. And you look at institutional structures as either uh, hindrances or, or advantages based on whether or not they help you progress. And I'm not sure that's the way that the framers thought about it. They, to me, it seems they thought about it as a form of government. And the separation of powers, it highlights, when you think of it as a form of government, it highlights a space. It highlights a space that, inside that form. And when you think about space, it highlights an activity that occurs within that space, and that's politics. And they want, as I've said before, to preserve that space against the dynamics that had been happening throughout history, the Polybian cycle. And so how do you do that, right? How do you check a sovereign, whether it be a sovereign people, a sovereign king, whoever it may be? Um, and they ended up creating the system whereby you divide power and amongst different branches of government. But it's not necessarily, in my view, mixed government. Like the, the, the Montesquieu's notion of mixed government, you have, different, you have different classes based on the kind of English constitution and they're all kind of deadlocked. And so therefore you can't really do much. This is uh, Machiavelli's understanding of, uh, of the Roman constitution as well. They then, it, they wanna get beyond that, I think. And so we have also the related notion of checks and balances. So separation of powers and checks and balances ultimately come out to separate institutions sharing 
powers. And I'm reminded of uh, Edward Corwin when he describes the presidency and Congress and foreign policy. And he said, and he talks about the relationship as an invitation to struggle, an invitation to struggle. And that is, I think, the way that the framers wanted the branches to operate, because that struggle produces conflict and that conflict prevents any one branch from transcending sure, its sure. limits. And that's the, that's uh, what, what, what Bruce Ackerman calls the Madisonian hope, which is this idea that if you have this dual legitimacy and the struggle, what you're going to get is bargaining and negotiation. But the, he contrasts that with, with the Lindsayan nightmare for uh, Juan Linz, which is that the dual legitimacy creates a, a irresolvable conflict and eventually the, the, the president uses the authoritarian plebiscite power to to run roughshod over Congress and, and basically you, you get the dual legitimacy leads to the breakdown of democracy. Now, are, are we in the Lindsayan nightmare now? You got a couple things there. One has to do with the making of policy and the reflection of different kinds of interests. And I think that leads us to a couple of interesting sets of questions that we've alluded to in, in previous episodes, and I'm sure we'll get to here. But that's really about the policymaking process. And that's rooted very much in this the um, visions of the presidency that James mentioned before that are very, they're really linked up to this progressive notion that government should be getting things done and moving us toward, I like this phrase, the promised land. Um, and we're focused on getting things done and separation of powers is um, slows down that process of getting things done. So that's a very modern 20th century paradigm about thinking about the separation of powers. Um, and you can see that you can see that in the discussions of policymaking in in the founding also, where the idea is that you would you would reflect different kinds of interests through the system as it's set up. So states are represented as states. We talked quite a lot about that when we talked about the Senate, the House representing the people and representing the people in a district-oriented way, and then the presidency as this sort of debates about how much the presidency is supposed to be representative, but it's a national it's a national office. So it's a very geographical lens of thinking about about interests. And so there's a question about well does the the separation of powers slow things down in getting things done? And is that out of step with contemporary needs? But then there's another question of like the the substantive kind of interest that it's supposed to reflect. And it's designed very much in a time where there's a lot of thought about balancing out region and locality. And there's a lot of thought about kind of balancing out the you know, the people from the representatives of the upper house, that kind of thing. There's not a lot of thought about the kinds of concerns we have today, partisanship about, you know, racial equality, gender equality. These are not part of the, the founding story. So there's really two separate representation questions with regard to separation of powers. And then there's this whole other distinct question about the branches holding each other accountable in in a situation of overreach and abuse of power, which obviously is on people's minds right now in in the fall of 2019 as, as the House proceeds with an impeachment inquiry against President Trump. Um, and I've kind of, I've, I think I've I don't written is the right word. I think I've tweeted about this before. The idea that it seems to me like a lot of the documents in the founding are really drawn around this idea that the um, that the balance of public opinion will ultimately generally fall toward good governance, 
And that's, that is not self-evidently true, but it, it makes sense that at a time when you're trying to design a constitution, you might just fall back on that assumption for lack of, of any kind of better solution. So I think when we're talking about separation of powers, we're really talking about several different levels of, of distinction and several different kinds of functions that the system is intended to perform. I, I think that's right, Julia. And I would add to public opinion leaning towards like wisdom and and truth, I think that they had an understanding that it would happen over time as well. It's not that the public is always immediately enlightened, but that they wanted to create a system whereby different interests could come together and and fight it out. And out of that, you would have in Madison's terms, uh, justice and the general good. But Madison, I mean, let's, I mean, to try to tie this all together, Madison articulates in Federalist 47, that you know, when he says that the accumulation of all powers in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, that's tyranny. And so you separate them. That's why they, they want to separate that. They don't want tyranny. But once they've embraced this notion of separation in principle, then you have to figure out how do you maintain it. And that gets to our institutional checks, the veto power, the advice and consent power, the confirmation process. You... You, you give each of these political branches, the presidency and the Congress, you give them a share of their opposing branches power with which to defend themselves and against encroachments onto their space. So it's really, it's separation of powers plus checks and balances together. And then you create, when you do that, you create a system that I think does ultimately lead towards justice and the general good. And it may take a little bit longer than, than people like, but it, it does tend to get in that direction, I think. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, I, I'm not sure that's right because, I mean, that, that theory assumes that the branches themselves have, have identities and interests, but that's never been true. Politicians, individual politicians have interests. Collectively, they have interests at part, as, uh, as partisans, uh, but the, the the interests are I, I think that's a, a fundamental uh, and crucial mistake that the framers made that the that the branches themselves were going to have identities. Uh, that's, well, I'm not that's, sure that they, it was that the, the you have to attach the ambition of the individuals within these branches to the branch. They have to see the place where the, the institution of which they are a member. As a, yeah, as a but that's never importance. been the, that's never really been the case. I mean, it's it's a fundamental mistake. Uh, I mean, the ambition has always been through through party or through uh, their own individual operations in, in 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 certain cases of the presidency. I but I do think that I take your point. But I it occurs it seems to me that. Yes, you had partisan interest and you had partisan aspirations, but it was to no. Control it's to control. It's to make policy. So that you could then it's to make policy. It's branch. to it's to it's to run the country. It's not to control a branch because controlling a branch by itself is is meaningless if your goal is to ultimately make policy and and to and to control the country. Right. I'm not sure that those two things are. I think we're. I'm not sure I disagree with you. I think the framers expected people to want to go to these places to make policy. And I think a big part of the problem we'll get to soon 
is that that's not happening. Yeah, it doesn't work. I think that when it comes to the presidency, that you get a kind of a different kind of institutional partisanship than you sometimes see with people who serve, for example, people who serve in the House or the Senate for a long time and maybe invested in the powers of that institution as a sort of long time horizon of not just making one policy, but making lots of different policies. I think for the presidency, that's different because presidents have served for typically for much shorter periods of time. But I think that there, it's this, the understanding of the scope of presidential power becomes a tool that you can use. And so to the degree that you can convince people that, that something falls within the purview of executive power, that gives you more policymaking power. And so you're invested in the office in that way. And it's maybe a little bit, it's not as long term, although I think it often has long term effects. The idea is, you know, making essentially a persuasive constitutional argument that this is within the president's um, within the president's right to do whatever that whatever that policy may be, whether it's it's Lincoln in the Civil War, FDR in the during the New Deal, or or what Bush um, during the War on Terror, what have you. So I, I want to actually move us on into segment two, which really gets into the the what's the problem and what I what I want to do here. Lee has already kind of previewed some of the the party problems, but I I want to start with James and put you on the spot a little bit to talk about Congress. And then I want to talk a little bit about the presidency. And then I I think Lee's points about party politics that he has written about in the past, we'll get to some of that. And then um, if if time allows, I will explain to Lee why he's wrong about presidentialism. So I think that's uh, how we'll start out this order of operations. So James, I'm looking forward to that. I'm a big fan of Lee's work. I don't agree with him on most things. I will say that on the party stuff, I am, I, I'm coming around slowly. I'm not sure it's the problem in the way that we think it is, though. And I think Congress and the separation of powers illustrates that very well. You have an institution where that isn't interested in preserving its sphere, that is unwilling to use its powers to check the executive and its members don't, so far as I can tell, see the institution itself, the institution qua institution as an important place. They see it as a means to an end. And that I think is partisan in nature. I think the the motivation behind that is certainly partisan in nature. But what happens is you no longer are able to maintain the separation of powers. It's the, the framers didn't expect, our system doesn't envision, doesn't depend on branches disciplining themselves, I think. I think it depends on branches disciplining each other. And we have a situation now where you can't, it, we're talking about automatic CRs to fund the government. You Government shutdowns are somehow illegitimate, whereas- Let me interrupt you quickly, just so you can uh, tell, tell anyone who may not know what CR stands for. So it's a continuing resolution. If, if you can't get an agreement on funding by the end of the fiscal year, the idea is that you would continue last year's uh, funding levels for uh, discretionary non-entitlement programs, which is an increasingly smaller share of the budget, but still important. You would continue that on from last year's levels. And lawmakers on both sides have taken away this idea that somehow shutting the government down is, is, the, is, is a bad thing. It's not, they don't see it as we need to fund the government. It's like, well, the government is going to be funded. And if we don't do that, we're shutting it down. And so they want to put this into law, which essentially transforms, I think, discretionary programs into mandatory programs, puts them on autopilot if Congress does nothing. But Madison says, I mean, real quick, the spending clause gives Congress the power to spend money. And Madison says it's the most complete and effectual weapon 
with which any constitution can arm the immediate representatives of the people. And then he goes on to say the House of Representatives, they're really powerful because all they have to do is they can not only refuse, but they alone can propose the requisite, the supplies requisite for the support of government. This is an important tool. We can't use it anymore. The confirmation process, the idea that the president is entitled to name the people that serve in his or her administration. The confirmation process, the idea that senators can't intrude on and have politics intrude into the confirmation process for judges is a bad thing. And people on both sides, they argue this. The, it's, the, the Congress is unwilling to defend its sphere. And as long as that's the case, the separation of powers begins to break down. And, I, and to come back to Lee's point, I, the reason they're doing this, it seems to me, it is party related, but it's, it's partisan in a different way. It's partisan in the sense of if we, if we defer to the president because he's our president or she's our president, or we're going to not challenge the president too much because we hope to be in the White House the next time. And everybody knows that's where you make policy. So we don't want to rock the boat too much. You've increasingly see this. And as long as members of Congress don't think Congress is important, I'm not sure that it is important. So that's, I mean, this is, we've talked a lot about this on this podcast. And I think that's really a fascinating um, way to think about it. James, I want to talk a little bit about where I think the, the presidency fits into this picture, because it, it occurred to me that you could easily write you know, a 900 word piece about the separation of powers and either focus entirely on the dysfunction of, of the Congress or entirely on the, I think, more complicated and nuanced dysfunction of the presidency. So we've already talked about this progressive notion of the presidency and alluded to this idea that the presidency fundamentally changed somewhere between the beginning of the 20th century and the New Deal to be this kind of agent of proactive federal involvement in many different policy areas, and that this is a fundamentally different office than the Constitution and the founders designed. And, you know, that argument obviously has been the the subject of a number of, of partisan evaluations and is maybe a whole nother topic on its own. But what I want to focus on is the way that the presidency, I think as a result of these changes, has become the focal point of the political system in a way that the Constitution really doesn't anticipate. So it's not just that, that we have partisan politics, but that presidents have a pretty substantial advantage over members of Congress in deciding what national party priorities are. And one thing we've really seen in the era of Trump is, you know, in in leading the partisan electorate. And I think that's a really, that's a really critical difference. I want to point um, our, our audience to some stuff that we'll put in the show notes. Josh uh, Chaffetz at Cornell Law has written this, you know, this wonderful book, Congress's Constitution, about all this congressional prerogative that Congress has and could use in these different ways. And I wrote a response to it in a symposium a couple of years ago when it came out about how it may be Congress's constitution, but it's the president's politics. Um, and I think that's one of the the dualities or the, the incomplete changes that we're, that we're dealing with. Uh, the other one is that although the presidency has changed a lot and become a lot more policy active and also a lot more partisan is that the presidency is still, you know, as designed a, a vector of stability. If that's if that's a thing, um, the presidency is really. And this is where I disagree with Lee about the importance of the work of Juan Linz and other people in comparative politics who have pointed to the danger of dangers of presidentialism. The dangers of presidentialism arguments tend to be about countries that have multiple parties, and they tend to suggest 
that instability is the is a critical factor there. Um, and the presidents who say win for with 35% of the vote, something like that, they're, they're illegitimate. I think we have the opposite problem here. I think we have too much focus on stability. People are very invested in the president because the president is the focal point of the party system and kind of the, the symbol of what politics is at a given time, that even people who don't particularly like the president seem often quite invested in finding legitimacy and stability in that office. So now what we've done is we've created a presidency that is both supposed to anchor the system, keep it stable, administer the government, be the public face of, of what's going on in government at a given time, and yet at the same time be the agent of policy policy change. So those are some of my thoughts about presidency, but I think Lee is going to tell us why uh, why partisan polarization is, is the problem. Well, okay. So let's talk about stability versus instability. And, and I think when we think about stability, we have to think about uh, the, the timeline of that stability. So I think short-term stability, yes, but long-term stability... I don't think so. Now, the Trump administration. I mean, yeah, it seems. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I think that's what you're. Is that what that's what you're arguing, right? That everybody rallies around the president to maintain the the short term stability of of the government. But like, think about foreign policy. We've done a 180 on foreign policy, and it's totally undermined the the that's the one area where the president has the most power and that's totally undermined the legitimacy and moral authority of the United States around the world uh, nobody is going to trust us after the Trump administration because the the fear is that well you know maybe the the Warren administration or the Biden administration yeah sure for 4 years that'll be fine but once the Cruz administration or the you know Cotton administration comes in, it's going to be a total one eighty. So we don't have there's there's a lot. Can of stability I interrupt and say there. I think that's that's a realistic fear, right? Yes, yes, I, I think that that creates a tremendous instability. Uh, I, I mean, there, there's whiplash on the politics. All, all these all these rules that Obama put in place on the environment, Trump administration has totally demolished them. And maybe that the Warren administration or the Buttigieg administration comes in and has us on a very progressive path on climate. And then again, we, we whiplash the other way. That, that creates tremendous instability in, in the economy, financial policy, tax policy. I mean, w because the parties have so polarized and everything gets organized around, gets shunted to, to, the, to the presidency, we, we have this incredible whiplash. I mean, this is, this is a problem of majoritarian systems, generally two-party systems, is that at, if the parties diverge, and they're clearly diverging, we get these extremes one way or the other. Uh, so we're not in this Madisonian bargaining situation because the, the entire process of separation of powers has never worked as it's intended. And it's especially not working now. Either we get unified government, in which case Congress is is just just a total lapdog of the presidency and you know goes in an extreme one way, or we get divided government, gridlock, nothing happens. So I, I don't I don't see how that's stability, except in the in the in the very short term. It seems incredible. It seems like incredible 
incredible instability in the long term. And and we can argue the multi-party presidentialism point uh, perhaps at another time because that takes us down a whole other argument. But I think multi-partyism actually works well with presidentialism. Uh, but that's probably a discussion. I want to respond argument. quickly to that before James jumps in because I think that this is this is a really important distinction that Lee made. So I'm going to interrupt to like say that I agree. Uh, this level of right, this sort of level of, of instability between administrations is is quite dramatic, and it's not so much that I think that the presidency is always a vector of stability, but that it is it's seen as one, right, and that its original design was to be one, and that that's that's at odds with some of the ways in which the office itself has evolved. And it's also at odds with, as, as Lee so eloquently laid out the whole, the whole political system. Um, okay, James, I know you're, I know you're dying to get in there. So jump in. But I think all great points, but again, it, it's premised on this understanding of parties as these highly cohesive teams that will stop at nothing to win and that are unified internally. And I, I do think that partisan polarization is an issue. I'm just not sure it's an issue in the way we think it is. We've talked about this in, in past episodes. But why it gets back to my point about why the separation of powers is breaking down. Why are members, why are partisans not seeing Congress as a place where you go to bargain? Or not even to bargain, just to try to win. Why, don't, why doesn't Susan Collins wake up every morning and say, I want to win today? And so, well, and where do I win? Well, Congress, because I'm a member of Congress. You well, what is she going to win? State parties. You have fifty state parties. What? what but but parties, James, what, what is what is she going to win? Like, what what does Susan Collins want to do other than keep winning elections? Like, what is what what is? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good point. But I think again, this really underscores the point I tried to make earlier about forms versus progress. Today we. If we can't guarantee a victory on the first try, or maybe the second try, or in the next election, then we say, what's the point? When in reality, the ability to try to win is winning, right? That's the whole I'm, point of the system. And I'm, and I'm so I don't confused. Know what she's going to win? I don't know what she's going to win. She, you know, or Cory Gardner wants to, you know, legalize medical marijuana, and you and you push these things, and you and you try to win in the environment. And then somebody else reacts to you and then you act again and it kind of goes on and on. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, there comes out of that an institutional understanding of what Congress wants to do. And right now we don't have that. And as long as we don't have that, then there is going to be this massive deference to the White House. But I mean, I think we're we're uh, you're you're conflating two things. You're, you're, you're there's the, the what you're reifying Congress as an it at the same time as talking about the the individual members. So either either it, either Congress is a they, which is political science dogma, in which case then the members themselves have ambitions, uh, which are channeled right now entirely through the parties because of how the system is organized, or Congress is an it, which I think is totally wrong. So I, I, to, to and this is this goes back to the critique of the whole separation of powers document a dogma is the, the idea that these institutions have a have a meaningful will when they're just institutions. But I'm they're not forums. sure that they're I don't I'm not necessarily sure that your view and my view are mutually exclusive. I mean you can no. reify Congress. Congress can be a place with four walls and a ceiling. 
in the thermostat. Well, but, but what is it? It's just a series of buildings and chairs. Well, yeah, but the institution is a place where it has members, and those members are individuals, and they go to this place and they interact and participate in an activity in this place for some goal to achieve and they're trapped. some goal. But but they're trapped because we have a nationalized politic, presidentialized politics in which whatever they do is is meaningless because everybody looks to the president to to define the party and and all the voters just they don't care about what individual members do they care whether it helps Democrats or Republicans which is defined by the presidency. I just want to point out something that, that James said that initially I thought um, you, you said something about the ability to be there and try to win is winning. And that initially broke my brain. Um, but then I started to think about it. And I thought that's really right. And it also really does diagnose what's what's wrong. And I think, again, Lee has sort of fleshed this, this out in talking about the way that individual members might see their incentives under a nationalized political system. Um which is really what we're talking about when we're talking about the dysfunction of separation of powers. Um, yes, yes, the, absolutely. What I think is is interesting here is that one possible one possible interpretation of what's been going on not only in the the Trump administration but I think substantially in the in the Obama years is a sort of politics of of playing perpetual defense. And so we're thinking about what is it that people are trying, what is it that people in in for example, in Congress are trying to do in a lot of ways, it's hang on for another, hang on for another election, maybe push back against an agenda that they don't like, as opposed to actually having, so we've kind of inverted this whole progressive paradigm of we're, we're making policy to move forward. The last decade or so has been more about different people trying to, to push back. And so in that sense, I think there is widespread losing under the criteria that, that James has laid out of just being there and trying to win means you've means you've won, you know, being there and and trying to beat back against something you don't like, or just kind of generally trying to save your own political career, because you like being in Congress for the the perks, and you might someday be able to be part of a coalition that makes policy that makes a difference is is not winning under that under that standard. The other thing I want to kind of move us along here and, and move us maybe even in getting close to our final our final segment where we'll talk about solutions. But I really want to sum up by saying that I think that Lee makes this point and he has a, a wonderful piece that we'll also share in our show notes where he argues that that separation of powers is no longer effective. Um, I am credibly committing one of us to make the show notes, by the way. Um, I'll do it. Is that, thank you, James. Um, so Lee makes this, this excellent point that the system doesn't work as intended uh, because of because of parties and partisanship and that we only have separation of powers when we have divided government. I would interpret that a little bit differently. And I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of impeachment, which we've weirdly not talked about at all, that we've only, we only have impeachment crises under at least partially divided government. And it occurs to me that the system doesn't, it doesn't work as anticipated, but it does kind of work as intended, right? That the, the nature of the political incentives that make Congress want to check the president are not what the founders envisioned, but nevertheless, they have, they have, you know, performed somewhat of the function. And we can, we can debate about whether the impeachment process is, you know, is functional, which we did a couple of weeks ago, and you can listen to that episode on its own. But, you know, this, this pushback does occur, it just tends to occur more often in this divided government party context. And you see this with all different sorts of party conflicts. So I don't know if that means the system doesn't work as intended. I think it just works, it's, it sort of doesn't look 
like what the founders envisioned, but political incentives were always part of this story. Sure. I, let, me, let me jump in real quick. And I agree with Lee that partisanship has, and polarization is, is broken, maybe too strong a word, but certainly uh, undermined or weakened or changed the separation of powers. I'm just not, again, sure it's for the same reason, but when I say trying to win, what I mean is you're acting in this place. There's a certain kind of action. You can be either proactive and you can actually propose bills, make motions, make speeches to attract attention so that you can then get more support for when you do subsequently make a motion or a bill or offer an amendment. Or if somebody that it can be reactive, which means that somebody else is acting, but somebody somewhere has to act. Take the Republicans in the Senate right now, their entire basis for being reelected, it seems to me. I mean, you have individual pitches, but as a party is we need vote for us so we can vote for judges, which is vote for us so we can vote for somebody who will act. That's what they're really saying. They're not doing anything. They're not pushing back. They're not using their power. And I get and I take Lee's points and I agree on why they're not pushing back. But it's interesting to me because I don't agree that the parties are unified. They're not cohesive. And so the question is, there's this, this kind of weird and maybe it's a thing I'm not explaining my thinking very clearly on this and I'm still working through it myself. But there's a disconnect between this division and their inability to act. Well, okay. So are, are they cohesive? Uh, there are tremendous disagreements, but they act cohesively. And they act cohesively because there's they've deferred, uh, individual members have decided that they want top-down leadership uh, because they, they want to win the next election and performing like a team will help them to win the next election, which means that they've given up their individual autonomy. Uh, and that's and that's hyperpartisanship. Now, uh, is it, Julia, uh, is it working as anticipated or intended? I think when we have these 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 parties that even if they're not cohesive under the surface, they act cohesively. What we have is is two possibilities: unified government in which there's no separation of powers. The parties. The party acts as as a united actor, or divided government in which it's all gridlock because the party that doesn't control the White House, in this case the Democrats, doesn't want to do anything that can count as a win for the White House. So, could we have a deal on infrastructure uh, in, in a normal functioning bargaining politics? That 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 that's the Madisonian hope in which there's negotiation and bargaining? Absolutely, we should. There's a lot of stuff that Democrats and Republicans could agree on if the goal was to actually make policy and solve public problems. But if the goal is to have advertisements and and things to say in the next election, then don't give Trump a win. Impeach the guy. Impeach the bastard. And, you know, he's the worst president ever. Let's let's boot him out of office. That's the politics that we're in right now. And that's the politics that we're in for the foreseeable future until we have some sort of realignment or breakup of the two-party system, because politics is fully nationalized and there's no denationalizing politics, I, I don't think. I mean, I think that the, I'm, I'm interrupting you here. I think, is there denationalizing politics is a great topic for another podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. But, um, or just this question about nationalized politics. So here's, here's my response to that, which is that I think you're right when it comes to policymaking and the, but this is a fairly recent phenomenon. So, yes. So it's important to make the distinction between, is it, you know, are, are parties 
antithetical to the functioning of the separation of powers or is kind of hyper partisanship in to to cite Francis Lee, you know, a, a system where there's close contestation to cite Lily Mason in a system where there's where people are really invested in their team identity as partisans. Great sites. Right. That's what Great makes sites. it dysfunctional, not parties themselves. But yes. nevertheless, the, those circumstances, I think, are conducive to under the right under the right circumstances. So like the situation where we have now where we have partially divided government, those are conducive, maybe not to policymaking, but to the idea of interbranch accountability and the ability of Congress to hold the executive branch accountable. And that's where I think it really matters how we conceptualize the impeachment inquiry, which we are not going to do today because we're going to move on to solutions. We are running a little bit long, friends. So let's There's just briefly consider some solutions, tell each other why we're wrong and <laughs> move forward. So what do, what do we do about this? Yeah. So I think it comes down to obviously what the problem is. It informs how you solve it. And to Lee's point, I don't see the opposition parties stopping things when when the party in power, the majority party or in the White House is around. It's that the no one seems to be pushing. And so for me, when I think about reforms internal to Congress and how to make it work better, when I think about reforms on a broader level with regard to separation of powers, it all comes down to how do we facilitate action? How do we facilitate members of Congress, the presidency? I mean, how do you make it easier or more expected? Or how do you help voters hold these people more accountable so that they will act? And those are the kinds of things that we ought to be doing. And that's the kind of the way I approach this problem. I think the separation of powers works quite well with, with intense conflict. But in this new era where we see politics as a progress to the promised land, rather than an activity in which one participates to make collective decisions. When you see it that way, then it, then it can't work. So we need to figure out how do we get all these people. There's a tremendous amount of disagreement, both within the parties and between the parties in our politics today. So let's, let's do what Madison tells us in, in Federalist 10 and 51. Let's harness that disagreement, use it to buttress the space of politics, the separation of powers in Congress and everything else. And then out of that, out of that arguing, the people will then kind of weigh in and you get something hopefully approximating justice in the general good. All right. Sometime we have to have a, a, a discussion on why 10 and 51 are, are in conflict with each other. But uh, I, I mean, to, 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 to Julia's point about the about is, is the problem parties. The problem is not parties. The problem is two parties that are evenly matched and deeply divided trying to, to get narrow majoritarian control over a government that was designed to resist narrow majoritarian control. That's why our system is breaking down. So, uh, I mean, that, that and that's why my, my big idea is that we just got to blow up the two-party system and then we'll, we can make the, the separation of power system work. Uh, and that would strengthen Congress. I mean, I think Overall, I, I think a, a parliamentary system in which the, 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 the executive and the legislature are joined is a, a better form of government than the divided, separated system that we have. But given that I don't think we're going to rewrite our constitution, I think we should uh, try to find ways to strengthen Congress and break the, the, the binary nationalized two-party system that we have. I mean, I think there are some ways we could potentially amend the constitution to allow members of Congress to serve in the cabinet and kind of bring the bring the branches a little bit uh, together, uh, may, maybe 
uh, you know, have a have a quasi prime minister uh, to kind of kind of bring things together. But you know, I, I think the 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 way things are going now, there it's only going to get worse unless we make some big changes. I think it, I, I want to wrap up because we're really um, really running long now. But I I guess for me, I don't think any of those things are necessarily bad. I guess what I don't necessarily see though is the this this would be the area where I would want reform. And I don't know that bringing the two branches closer together would bring enough policy gains to offset the losses in terms of, you know, interbranch accountability and the kinds of productive, I think productive conflict maybe doesn't always look, doesn't always look productive, but I think it does reflect some of the diverse interests in society and that we shouldn't, we shouldn't shy away from conflict. We're just in a particularly conflictual and maybe a little a little stagnant period in our politics. I'm not totally convinced that the that merging the branches would help much with that. But we don't have interbranch conflict. We have partisan conflict. Anyway, well, we're wait, going wait. long. But, but we we don't even really have partisan conflict. We have this kind of passive aggressive conflict in places where it's okay to conflict, but in our institutions and that are separated sharing powers, there's a profound agreement that there should be no conflict. The Democrats aren't using all of their powers to stop the president. The Republicans didn't with uh, when, when President Obama was in the White House. The Senate doesn't try to stop the House and vice versa. Is that They shy away from conflict inside these institutions. And my argument is that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Ambition cannot check ambition unless you have conflict. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I just think that there is different, like this operates at different levels and in different ways, depending on what the substance of the issue is. And a lot of the problems I think people point to as institutional dysfunction are actually the growing pains of, I think I'm borrowing a phrase from someone, possibly aforementioned Lily Mason. Um, I think these are the growing pains of a diverse society becoming a full democracy. And that's, you know, I don't know that there are clear institutional solutions of the sort that often get floated around. Um, does anyone want the last word before we, before we call it? Bring us home, Julia. No, that was, that was home. That was home for me. All right. Um, all right. All right. Home run. Institutional agnosticism and deep concern about uh, becoming, becoming a full democracy. So. All right. Citing Lily Mason for the win. So yes, that that's a topic for another day. Can, can we be a fully functioning multi-ethnic diverse democracy i think we've set out our agenda for the next like six months worth of podcasts so i thank you all for listening to politics in question uh that's a wrap i'm julia azari i'm lee drutman i'm james walner see you next time thank you for listening to politics in question the show is a joint production of new america and the r street institute and our producers are elena soros shannon lynch and jason stewart Theme music was composed by yours truly. 